Hello, greetings. We're really glad that you've joined us. We're glad that you're interested in spiritual things. My name is Ethan, and I work with the Venice Church of Christ. We're disciples making disciples in the west side of Los Angeles. And we've been engaged in a very important study, in a very foundational, fundamental topic, the plan of salvation established by God in the Scriptures. And we've already seen in, in previous conversations that first, uh, if we're going to understand the plan of salvation. We need to first hear the message of God in Christ. We need to understand the, that which would lead to our salvation. And that's why in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And so we need to hear the gospel. And if we're going to hear the gospel, some people need to go and preach the gospel. And if you to preach the gospel, they must be sent to do so in Romans 10. And we saw that in 1 Peter 2 and verse 9, that we have been... Uh, called by God out of darkness into his marvelous light to proclaim his excellencies. And that's why we need to take the gospel out to the world. And once we've heard it, we need to believe the gospel. We need to put our trust in Jesus as Lord and Christ. Yes, we need to uh, have that mental recognition that he is Lord and Christ, but then we need to actually begin putting our trust in him. And to put our trust in him demands that we act like he is Lord and Christ. And to do that, we need to start doing the things that he says to do. We begin that by, in Romans 10, 9 and 10, confessing that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then to allow our actions to be consistent with the words we've spoken. But that can only begin when we repent, when we change our mind for the better. We change the way we think so we can change the way we feel and that we act in Acts 2.38. And also, we need to be immersed in water in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. Uh, that's what God has commanded for Christians in order for us to come into contact with the blood of Christ, in order for us to die and be raised in Christ spiritually in Romans 6. And it is the expected response of faith upon hearing the gospel message throughout the first century in the New Testament. Then one becomes a Christian. That's not the end of the plan of salvation. Then we need to continue to obey the Lord Jesus, to serve Him, to endure to the end in Matthew 10.22, and to continue to obey Him until the day of our passing or the day of the Lord's return, so we may share with Him in the resurrection of life. So that's all great. That's the plan of salvation as revealed in the pages of Scripture. And the reason why this becomes a bit of a challenge at times is because... There are many ways in which man has diverged from the plan established by God. And so it, it, it's hard just to use the term plan of salvation, because plan of salvation may mean very different things to different people because of the things that they've been taught. And so I spent some time looking at some of the different ways in which man has come up with his own plan of salvation and different aspects of those ideas and compare them to scripture because again hope is very clear that we should not believe anything because somebody says so uh... i'm i'm just ethan um, we should nothing should be believed because ethan says so uh... I should not believe something that you say just because you say so instead we should believe what is true because god has said it and that we can see that he has said it in his word and so that's why we're going to compare all of these different things that people are saying about salvation to what God has said in His Word, just as we have already subjected, hear and believe and confess and repent, be baptized and be obedient to what we've seen in the pages of Scripture.
one very ancient divergence from the way that salvation is portrayed in the scriptures involves a relationship between one's salvation and the church. That as Catholicism developed in the first millennium and even in the second millennium, the church took on a greater role and began to be seen as an institution above and beyond the collective of God's people. And that way, in that way, many started to look to the church as a mother figure. A, <clears throat> a lot is put into the metaphor of Christ as the bridegroom and church as the bride. And so, the church becomes something people can come into and go out of, and it's less about the people themselves. And that means that in the plan of salvation, sometimes in Roman Catholicism, uh, there is a view that salvation is in the church. And then there's a verse like Ephesians 5 and in verse 23, where Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. And so we see that statement there by Paul, that Jesus is the Savior of the church. And so a, a verse like that on its own just is saying, Jesus is the Savior of the church. But how is Jesus the Savior of the church is not answered by this verse. And the answer that was being promoted in Roman Catholicism, and is promoted this day, is the idea that Jesus saves the church. That if you, you, in order to be saved, you need to be in the church. The church is that which is going to be saved. And that is why Paul says that it's the collective that is what is saved. And that's all that means. Therefore, you must be in the collective, and we're that collective. If you're not in this collective, if you're not in communion with Rome, uh, your salvation is in doubt. And, and yet, throughout the rest of Scripture, there's a different way that it's being looked at. In Acts chapter 2, for instance, uh, in verse 30, uh, 41 through 42, we see the response and faith of the people who have heard the gospel from, from Peter, these 3,000 who have become Christians. And we're told about them in verse 48, 47, excuse me, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And the King James says the Lord added to the church day by day those who were being saved. And so what we're seeing here is people are being saved and then they're being added to the church. And so this is the matter of the question. Do we need to be part of the body of Christ to be saved? Absolutely. We see in Ephesians 5 that relationship. We see that in 1 Corinthians 12, that you have to be part of the body of Christ. How can you be part of Christ yet disconnected from the body? It does, it does not work. On the other hand, is somebody saved because they're in a church? And we never see that explicitly said in Scripture. That's the idea... That somebody is saved because they're a part of a particular church or in the church is not ever the way that it is put. It's not even put that way in Ephesians 5. Because in Ephesians 5 we can understand that somebody is in the church because they've been saved. And so in that sense, Jesus is the Savior of the church because he's the Savior of all those people who have come to faith and represent his body. That is absolutely a defensible way of understanding salvation and then approaching what Ephesians 5 says. There is no merit to the claim that, no, you have to be in the church. That is what's going to save you. Nowhere in this plan of salvation in, in the New Testament is very interesting. Even though all Christians became part of the body of Christ and became part and worked with local churches, we don't see any statement saying you had to be part of that church in order to obtain salvation. 
in those words. That, well, you are now saved because you're in the church. No, no, that's not the way that it is put. You are saved and then added to the church. That's the way it's put in Scripture. Do you need to be part of the church? Yes. Is that a very important part of your growth in Christ? Yes. Do you need to be part of the body to be saved? Yes. But are you saved because you're part of the body? No. That's sometimes challenging to understand, challenging to talk about, because it's just adding this extra layer. Um, And so we need to be very careful when we talk about it. Sometimes in America especially, we kind of reduce the importance of the community of the people of God, uh, and we kind of emphasize the role of the individual, and we need to be careful about that. On the other hand, we do need to recognize that Jesus is saving people, the people become a collective, and that is why the collective is being saved. People are not saved because of their being in the collective per se, that because they're in the collective, that's why they're saved. No, no, that's not the way that it works. So that's something that is seen in some of the historic churches, Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodox, and things like that. Uh, the rest of our time, we're going to talk about some of the things we see in many groups that are called under the largest umbrella of Protestantism. Um, and, and often included in that would be uh, Calvinist churches, Lutheran churches, and uh, especially the various evangelical groups. And it's important for us to recognize how they came about in order to understand why their plan the salvation diverged, because they are seeing the excesses of Roman Catholicism, uh, Luther and Calvin and the groups in the 16th century. And so they are uh, seeing what the Roman Catholic organization is doing, and they see the excesses that are not even part of the Catholic tradition, let alone anything in Scripture, uh, he didn't. You know, Luther did not intend to have a complete break with Roman Catholicism. He would much rather see it changed or reformed, uh, hence Reformation. But uh, a lot of times, uh, the more Luther is kind of put in a position contrary to the Catholics, the more extreme his positions become, and he's just kind of running the opposite direction from where Catholicism stood. And uh, this is what we can see, especially with justification by faith alone, uh, and many of the other distinctive doctrines of Luther. Uh, meanwhile, Calvin in it returns to Augustinian theology and drinks from the Augustine's theology to its full dregs in terms of God's sovereignty, predestination to election, predestination and condemnation, and things of that sort. And so, in in both of these threads, when you go through uh, extreme Augustinianism, and you get to the idea of justification by faith only because you've seen the excesses of work salvation in, in Roman Catholicism of the time, you see why all of a sudden there is a condemnation of I, bap, being baptized for remission of sin for adult salvation. And they absolutely condemned that, because at the same time you've got the Anabaptist groups in Germany in the 16th century. And there's one thing that Roman Catholics and and Calvinists and Lutherans could agree on, and that is the need to persecute Anabaptists. And many Anabaptists were imprisoned, tortured, and killed for their confidence that people needed to be baptized as adult believers by immersion. Uh, or actually many of them poured. Uh, or But the idea of adult baptism uh, for their mission of sin was something that was absolutely... Uh, considered anathema, uh, to emphasize and to demand, as if the, as the scriptures taught as much. 
And so, this whole idea of faith alone, and justification by faith alone, and God's sovereignty, meaning that man uh, is not an actor in his own salvation, because uh, God has already decreed uh, what will be, is why there's a lot of suspicion about works in various forms of Protestant theology. On the one hand, many of the early reformers understood that Christians need to be obedient. Uh, but when you don't make obedience necessary for salvation, the importance of obedience gets minimized and allows for people to overreact when people point out that you need to be obedient. And many would say, in overreactive ways, uh, that no, obedience was not required. We call that antinomianism. That, you know, there's no law that you don't need to follow law. Um, and that has been a re overreaction and a thing that has existed in Protestant theology throughout its existence. And um, a lot of times, uh, things like baptism are minimized as a work, and uh, that you need to do for salvation would make it anathema, even though the same groups may not have a problem with expecting somebody to pray a prayer or something of the sort, which um, I don't think there can be any meaningful distinction made between saying a prayer and submitting to baptism as faith responses. Um, it's just a... So why is it that so many Protestants, so many evangelicals, when you start pointing out the scriptures that talk about baptism as a normative faith response in the New Testament to the Gospel of Christ, uh, it's because of this baggage they're inheriting from the Reformation. It's because there's any there's suspicion of work. So somehow this prayer has been entered in as the acceptable work. Um, but baptism, which God has actually mentioned, is not and there's no justification of Scripture for it, there's nowhere in the New Testament that you can find somebody praying a prayer in order to obtain salvation. Uh, nobody prays Jesus into their heart in the New Testament. That language is foreign to the New Testament. Uh, however, what people are doing is, when they hear the Gospel, their immediate response is they need to be baptized. They understand that baptism is the means by which you come into contact with the blood of Christ. That it's not a work that you do in order to be saved, as if you earn salvation. It is the response and obedient faith to what God has done for us. And it's very interesting when you talk with people, a lot of time, and maybe you're listening and you're, you're, you're in that Protestant evangelical camp where uh, sometimes it's just a matter of looking across the fence and some people just do not feel comfortable with the idea of saying it's necessary for salvation, uh, even though that's what the New Testament actually says, because they're concerned that you're making a work and you're adding uh, things. And, and again, we got to be careful about that because Peter says it explicitly in 1 Peter 3.21. And that may not be the way that you've heard it. And I understand there's a lot of people uh, with very big bullhorns who are saying it in different ways. Uh, but what does Scripture say? It's not about what I say. It's not about what you, what you say. It's not about what we think. It's about what does Scripture actually say. And the sinner's prayer, according to the page of Scriptures, is indefensible. Because baptism is the normal response in faith. Another thing that is often used uh, in, in, among many Protestants is, is what's called the principle of exclusivity. Uh, that a lot of times what people will try to say is, okay, here's a passage, like Acts 16.31. says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your whole household. And people conclude from that all you need to do is believe to be saved. That that's uh, all that's necessary. Or perhaps you look at Romans 10, 9 through 10, where Paul says that uh, you need to believe and confess in order to be saved. And they'll say, okay, you need to believe and confess. That's all you need to do to be saved. And so this is the uh, principle of exclusivity. 
that in some verses, these verses, certain things are what you need to do to be saved. And so the exclusive principle says, well, since God says in this passage you need to believe to be saved, therefore all you need to do, the exclusively belief, saves. Now, is the principle of exclusivity a legitimate principle? Uh, there are times where a principle of exclusivity is important. Uh, when you have what God has said about a matter, that's what is included, all else is excluded. Absolutely, there are times where an exclusivity principle is very important. But here's the challenge when it comes to imposing a principle of exclusivity on the plan of salvation. And that is, as the psalmist says in Psalm 119.160, the sum of, God, of your word is truth. Because you've got these other verses, okay? So if in Acts 16.31 it says, Believe on Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, you and your household. Romans 10, 9 through 10, uh, you need to believe and confess in order to be saved. 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism now saves you. Um, Acts 2, 38, repent and be, let each one of you be baptized. As Brent, when the Jews asked, when and what shall we do? And even in Acts 3, 22, I mean, actually, actually, excuse me, uh, Peter emphasizes the need for repentance as well. And so, what are we supposed to do when there are verses that say we need to hear to be saved, believe to be saved, confess to be saved, repent to be saved, baptize to be saved, um, to endure to the end, the same shall be saved, Matthew 10, 22, to endure, to obey. Uh, what, what happens when you have all of the, these verses that are said, these are what you need to do if you're going to be saved? If you can't, why would you privilege some but not others? What God's trying to tell us there is that those are the things you need to do to be saved. All of them. Uh, and, uh, again, the, the whole principle of specific can be used against somebody. You can, we can point, well, 1 Peter 3, 21, baptism now to save you. Therefore, all you need to do to be, is to be baptized to be saved. Uh, if, if, if I were to say that to you, like, wait, 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 wait a second, though. That's not what that verse is saying, uh, because in order to get baptized, you'd, want, you'd need to do these other things. Uh, you need to believe first. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus. You need, just baptism doesn't save anybody, and I would agree with you. And that shows why the principle of exclusivity here is not a wise principle, because there are all these different things now. Uh, when we do all the things that God says we need to do to be saved in the pages of the New Testament, we can say that is exclusively what you need to do. Because we've respected now all of what God has said. Because if I try to say that just baptism saves, or just belief saves, I've now entered disharmony into Scripture. Because now, if I'm going to say all I need to do is believe, now I've got to explain why First Peter 3.21 says baptism saves. I've got to explain away the plain words of Scripture. Likewise, if I were to say baptism is what saves, now I have to explain away the plain sense of Acts 16.31 or Romans 10.9-10 and passages like that. And that's why it is just not a wise principle to use in this particular uh, context. Another argument that's frequently advanced in, in the same line of thought is that the work of salvation is done on the cross and that, therefore, no, nothing we can do for salvation. And normally the way this is talked about is in terms of the finished work of Christ. And implicit in this idea is that Christ's blood at the moment of his death, at that moment, atoned for the sins of all those who be saved, uh, so that... You know, the, the blood of Christ was already attached to the sins even before they were sinned. 
because it's the finished work of Christ. You can't change it, add to it, or anything of the sort. Now, we need to be very clear about this. In John 19, 3, Jesus says it is finished. In Hebrews 7, verse 27, that uh, the reason he's a great high priest for us is because he died once for all. And so absolutely it's true that Jesus did the work necessary to be to save us on the cross, and I'd also argue in the resurrection, um, and that he is well suited to be high priest for that reason. And, there, and, and I, we can even agree that there's nothing that we can do uh, to earn salvation. There's nothing we can do to merit salvation. We can do all the works we want. We can then stand before God and say, look at all these things I've done. And all God's going to have to do is point out one sin. And James 2, 9 and 10, we are condemned as having transgressed the law. And that's why Paul says in Romans 3, 20 that um, no one will be justified in the sight of God by works of the law. Because no matter what, we will be found as transgressors because we have all transgressed. But this idea that the finished work means that in 30 CE every absolute thing had been done for salvation just doesn't sit well with Scripture because we're, we're told that people convert and have their sins forgiven. That the sins are forgiven when they're baptized, when they convert, when they become part of Christ. Which means that they weren't forgiven in the year 30, they were forgiven when they submitted to God in faith. And that makes actually a lot of sense when we look at salvation in terms of accounting and reckoning. That Jesus' blood can be, we can appeal to Jesus' blood through baptism, through when we're, when we're Christians, when we confess our sins to God and ask for forgiveness. When we appeal to the blood of Christ, we can receive cleansing from that blood 2,000 years after it was shed, in, when we... Uh, make that petition, and God reckons us as having been forgiven. That's what justification is, anyway. It's reckoning as righteous. And so that reckoning can keep happening time and time and time again. Um, and, and that's something that's very important, because the gospel gets preached, people obtain the forgiveness of the sins when they submit to God in faith. It wasn't all done 2,000 years ago. There's no scriptural reason to suggest as much. that your sins have not already been forgiven before you come to the Lord. They are forgiven when you put your faith in Him and obey Him. And that is why we can speak of this in terms of what's often called prevenient grace. That yeah, God has shown His grace already in that Jesus died once, but 2,000 years later, his blood can still atone for our sins in a way that, you know, we didn't have to do it well before we sinned. That doesn't make sense. That's not consistent with anything in Scripture and its witness. Furthermore, it'd be very, it's very interesting to consider this idea the finished work of Christ means that there's that response in faith proves unnecessary because everything's been done by Jesus. Because the, the New Testament authors affirm the first part of this principle that we're, we're discussing. That Jesus has done all the work necessary to save us. That there's nothing we can add to it. They say that. Meanwhile, they expect people to respond in obedient faith. And again, this is where the disagreement comes and with, with our Protestant evangelical friends, or perhaps you are one of our Protestant evangelical friends. This is where the disagreement comes. Where you think that there's an automatic, natural 
demand that if Jesus has done it all on the cross, that means there's nothing we can do at all, and that faith response is therefore unnecessary. That's a conclusion, that's an assumption, that's not what is said. Because Jesus did it all doesn't mean I now add to it as if I can somehow earn my salvation. No, but why does Paul say that his whole purpose is for people, that he's preaching the gospel into the obedience of faith among the nations in Romans 1 and Romans 16? Why does he say that when we're under grace in Romans 6, 15-23, that that means that we have become obedient to the standard of teaching to which we've been committed? The reason that he can say that is because he does not have this bifurcation that was introduced in Protestant theology between responding in faith and Jesus having done the work fully on our behalf. And that's what explains that, yes, we are saved by grace through faith in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, but we receive the gift in faith in Romans 3, 24-25. In verse 1, 22, we purify our souls through our obedience. Why? Because we're responding in faith. Paul's big concern is the idea that we would stand before God and say that we earn salvation. No, we cannot say that. We do not earn God's favor because of what we do. Because we'd always be unworthy. But once we've understood that, that now what? Does that mean that we're not supposed to be faithful, being his servants? That somehow that becomes optional? No. That becomes just as important as the response in faith. Not dependent upon our own righteousness, our own amazingness, but dependent upon God. It is the natural response. It's what it means to have trust in somebody. To trust somebody as an authority figure means that you do the things they tell you to do. That naturally flows there. Uh, this, this argument begun in the 16th century is asking a question uh, and providing answer to which Scripture never asks and never intends to answer the way that it's being answered. And it's creating this distortion because it assumes that the question the Reformers are asking is the issue Paul is facing, and it's not. It's not. And that is why when we start taking the idea of justification by faith and we start throwing the word only places it doesn't belong, or misunderstanding what is said in Scripture about the nature of being saved in Christ. Again, we need to keep sharing. Faith only is used in one place in James 2, and James says that we are not saved by faith alone. What man needs to accept God's gift of of salvation in Christ and he does that through responding in faith and doing what God tells to do because God said to do it because you're trusting in him that's how you can make sense of all that the New Testament has to say because it's very strange to read in Romans in Galatians Ephesians and Philippians, the Gospels for that matter, why there is so much exhortation toward righteous moral and ethical conduct and the need to obey the Lord Jesus Christ if, in fact, there's no need for it. No, there is a need for it. It's inherent and implicit in what it means to put one's faith and trust in Jesus. The problem is that since the Gospel has been revealed, uh, people have attempted uh, however well-intentioned, to create further distinctions not established in the text, and therefore have created a distorted view of what the Bible is all about.
And this helps us understand so many things about the New Testament. Is baptism a work? Well, no. It's the response in faith. In fact, it's a very submissive response in faith. Uh, you submit to baptism. Somebody else is doing the work. And it's very appropriate to as an expression of faith in God for the cleansing that comes through the blood of Jesus and his resurrection. Um, yes, we're saved by grace through faith. But that faith puts our trust in God because of the grace that God has shown us. And that makes a much more holistic purpose. And because man has to accept God's grace, it also demonstrates why there are consequences for man rejecting God's grace. And that does not mean that God has predetermined people to be saved or to be con condemned. God knows in advance, but we are given the cho choice whether we're going to serve righteousness or serve sin, and we will be held responsible for that in Romans 2, 2 Peter 2, Hebrews 10, and other passages. And so we can see all of these divergences that man has established from God's path of salvation. They've all involved taking some good thing and distorting it, making it to more than it should be, or by going beyond, going too far the other way when you see an excess. So we need to make it clear. We need to be part of the church, but we're not going to be saved because we're in the church. Uh, we need to always keep in mind that we are saved by grace through faith. But that does not mean that we have no faith response to provide because of what God has done for us. Uh, it does not mean that we are just pawns in a game where it's already been rigged. It does not mean that uh, everything's out of our hands. No, it means we need to put our trust in the Lord Jesus. We need to follow Him. And that we need to respect all of what God has revealed in the New Testament, and not just cherry-pick certain verses and act like we can freely uh, just pit one verse against another. Uh, no, that's not the way we're, we're supposed to interpret Scripture, and uh, all we're doing at that point is just justifying or reinforcing our prejudices. That's not the way we're supposed to approach the Word of God. So again, very glad that you've joined us. We hope that you've been encouraged by this. If you've got some questions about these different ways of understanding the plan of salvation, uh, understanding what God has said versus what man has said, uh, I'd like to talk more about that. Please let me know. Maybe you'd like to talk about other things. Maybe you'd like to just talk, or maybe you have a request. Maybe some stuff's going on. Uh, anyway, I can be of service. Please let me know. Please contact me through my website at theverbalvitae.com. That's www.deverbovitae.com. Uh, or maybe you'd like to learn more about the Venice Church of Christ. Uh, we're online at VeniceChurchOfChrist.org. We're also on Facebook, Google+, Instagram, Twitter, other things like that at Venice Church and Venice Church of Christ. Thank you very much. Have a great day.